There would be a strangeness, um, I would think, to preaching Christmas sermons um, in January, wouldn't there? Like, Christmas is over, we're in January, why, why are we still preaching the Christmas story? Um, we'll just come back to that next year. I don't think, though, it's near as strange to have Easter sermons after Easter, Preaching about the resurrection is always in season. And I think it's true that we can say that every sermon, even when it's not explicitly mentioning and focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a resurrection sermon because that sermon only exists because Jesus does. So this morning we're going to continue celebrating Easter themes As we finish out Luke's gospel this week, next week, and then the week after. And we've been there almost two and a half years. So if you're thankful, we're going to move on to something else. Maybe I am too. But it has been a rich study of the gospel of Luke. At least I've learned and grown through the process. Over the last five years of being a teaching pastor here at the church, I've made it a point, um, almost to a fault, to never repeat sermon stories. I've only broken that rule, I think, once or twice, and one of them uh, was recently. I don't know why I felt so strongly about it. I think it's because the perception I have of the perception of preachers is that we're like those people that have six stories on repeat all the time. Uh, So I think I'm trying to explode your perceptions. I I don't know if it's worked. Um, But I know the biblical authors don't have the same aversion to repetition that I do. Um, I think, for example, of, of... Peter, he writes in his second letter this. Now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, he says. And then that's at the end of the letter. That's in chapter 3, verse 1. And then at the beginning of the letter, he speaks the same things. I intend always to remind you. And he goes on to say what he's going to remind him of. So they don't seem as opposed to it. So I bring that all up to say, when we come to Luke chapter 24, Uh, this morning, specifically verse um, uh, 13 all the way to 35. I've actually preached that before, here. Uh, Not here in this church building, so it means it's at least longer than a year and a half old. Uh, But I have preached it to us. And the more I re-studied the passage and re-looked at my old sermon, which I had forgotten some of what I had preached, so I don't, my hope is that you've forgotten it in a sense as well. Actually, my hope is that you haven't forgot, but if you have forgot, I, that's okay, it'll be new to you here as we do it uh, this time. Before I read it, I'll say this, that for all the epicness of what is spoken from the cross on Good Friday, so Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and into your hands I commit my spirit, um, and then, then the other one that's actually in Luke's gospel, he says, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. There's seven statements that are spoken from the cross. For all the wonder and glory and epicness of those statements, the first words that Jesus speaks after the resurrection that are recorded for us in Luke's gospel are very, very plain. And yet, they're probably my favorite words in all of Luke's gospel. So with that in mind, I'm going to read verses 13 through 19a. We're actually going to preach more than that, but I want to read it just at least that part to get us going. And then I'll pray that the Lord would be our teacher and we'll study it together. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. Uh, Otherwise, it'll be on the screen and it's on page 1007 if you're using one of those Bibles uh, in the row in front of you. 
So after Jesus rose from the dead, we have this story in Luke 24. The very next day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all, the th- all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, this morning we, we gather together as your people. But we all come with many different emotions and experiences and, and things rattling around in the back of our mind and heart. Perhaps even anxieties weighing on us. I think of these two people in this story. It says they looked sad because they were. Perhaps some of us this morning are bringing burdens and cares. Lord, as you open the eyes of these two disciples, would you open our eyes in a greater way to behold you in all of your beauty and glory and that we would see that you indeed have no rivals. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, A few years ago, this wasn't even in Harrisburg, uh, my wife and I were sitting in the living room of our house, and at one point I look over at my wife and I say, do you smell gas coming from our kitchen? Um, And it turns out there was. And thankfully, that situation was resolved and and nothing bad happened. Um, But you realize, don't you, that when you smell gas coming from your kitchen, that's a dangerous and delicate situation. In the Christian calendar, the week before Easter is called Palm Sunday. And it too was a dangerous and delicate situation. And understanding what happened on Palm Sunday helps us understand, I think, much of what's happening here in this passage in Luke 24. Palm Sunday gets its name because followers of Jesus, in their excitement, were laying palm branches on the road that Jesus was traveling as he moved towards Jerusalem. They're taking off their cloak, and he's riding in Jerusalem as a king, riding on a donkey. It's been a few months since we preached this passage, but I want to read Luke chapter 19, verse 37 to 40, that spoke of what was happening on Palm Sunday. It goes like this. As he, Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This scene 
is at the same time both wonderful and strange to us. It feels foreign. We call this Jesus' triumphal entry, and here's why. It was in a similar way that King Solomon, when he was going to his inauguration as a king, a young king, uh, entered the holy city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter 1. Also, there was this prophecy from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, that says Israel's king would come into Israel. Um, Riding into Zion, another name for the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. And when he does, the people of God would rejoice and shout for joy. And consider this as well. Jerusalem, so we learn, has something like 40,000 people in the city most of the time. But at this celebration of um, what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, That culminates in the Passover celebration. Week-long festival culminates in Passover. Jerusalem, we learn, swells to the size of about six times larger than it was ordinarily. So what that means is that Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, activating old prophecies that people were, um, in some ways, forgotten and yet remembering very acutely, Jerusalem swells with an extra 200,000 people there to worship the Lord and celebrate a time when God overthrew an oppressor. All while, the, by the way, while Israel is being oppressed by Rome. And when you add to that the fact that the relationship between the Roman rulers and the religious leaders was tenuous at best, you can realize, I think, the slow build of pressure in this system is growing exponentially. And Jesus is going into Jerusalem on a donkey, hailed as king, but he's going into a house filled with gas. And it's a dangerous and delicate situation where the wrong spark could set the whole thing off. Let me put it like this, maybe in terms that would be more familiar to us. On January 20th, About two years ago, a little more than two years ago, 2017, our president, who was president-elect, was then sworn in as president. Now, it's a big deal in Washington, D.C. There's parades. uh, it's It's on television. There's all sorts of extra people there. But imagine what would happen if early in the morning on January 20th, the runner up in the presidential election got into a black suburban and then got in a, a line, an entourage um, of black suburbans. And then there was a number of strong-looking gentlemen with earpieces in dark suits to walk alongside this entourage of black suburbans. And they went to Washington, D.C. And they traveled down Pennsylvania Avenue and Constitution Avenue. You'd realize that's not just part of the parade. That's someone making a statement. Now, that didn't happen, of course. But you'd realize that's a dangerous and delicate situation as there's people cheering about that and others who are disturbed by it. Now back to the passage we just read. That is the one we read at the beginning of the service or the beginning of the sermon. The first question Jesus asks these travelers, though they don't know it's Jesus yet, is this. Hey guys, what you talking about? 
And what happens next? We read again in verse 17 through 19. And they stood still. Looking sad. No, remember they're walking. Jesus asked the question. And they just stop. And they look sad. And then one of them musters the courage. It says named Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem. Who does not know the things that have happened here in these days. And then he said to them. What things? (laughs) That is my favorite two words in all of Luke's gospel. (laughs) I think Jesus knew something about what had happened in these days. The triumphal entry. The overturning of the money changers tables in the courtyard. The arrest. The flogging, the nails, the crucifixion, the wrath of God poured out upon him, and the empty tomb. Jesus knew something of the things that had happened in Jerusalem during these days. He has a purpose for being so sneaky. That's what I want to talk about. Why does Jesus delay the recognition of who he is? Why why does he hold that back? For me, this is really the question we have to answer to make sense of the rest of the passage. Again, I'll read it one more time. In verse 16, we read this. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why? Why this delay? Why would God veil their ability to see Jesus for who he is? I mean, he's right there in front of them. He's alive. Why does it Jesus just say so? Why the suspense? Why does Jesus play dumb? I guess we could say. Why does Jesus say, I see you're talking about something. What you talking about? Now, later in the story, which we'll read in a moment, their eyes are open. They get it. They behold Jesus. They see Jesus for who he is and how wonderful he is. And they begin running around and telling other people about it. But why the delay? Well, On top of everything I said in the introduction, to make the situation in Jerusalem even more precarious, something else was also happening in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the cultural expectations that the Messiah would primarily be a political revolutionary leader was starting to get more and more enticing. I'll say that again. In Jerusalem, the cultural expectation that the Messiah that they're all waiting for would be something, perhaps even mainly, a political revolutionary leader. That was gaining excitement. And that's understandable. The Jewish people had undergone a pounding year after year after year, not only by Rome, but by many others in the hundreds of years prior to Jesus' arrival. And Israel had made many compromises, not just with Rome, but with many others in the years preceding. And they were tired. They were very tired. And the hope that someone would redeem Israel was all they could think about. And so they took their little hope, which wasn't necessarily a wrong hope, but they lifted it up and made it the thing they were hoping in. And it made it hard to understand Who the real Messiah was. And how big and glorious and awesome he is. Let me put it to you like this. A few years ago, um, 
my wife had a gym membership uh, where she had been working out, and, and that gym changed a certain policy. I won't name the gym. Um, you can come up and ask me later. I'm, I'm not trying to hide it necessarily, but it doesn't matter that much. But the gym had a policy that uh, childcare was included in the monthly price of your gym membership. And so... Um, for the time, I think it was $23 for us, which isn't too bad. You can sometimes, if they have a deal, you can get into gyms a little cheaper than that. But for a gym membership, $23 a month isn't too bad, especially uh, if you have four children at the time and the, that price is included. Now, I can't um, vouch f- for certainty that we were the reason they changed the policy. <laughs> you're, you're laughing <laughs> Uh, we had four at the time. My wife went on maternity leave, so to speak, from this gym. But they changed the policy. It was now $9 per kid um, per month for the gym membership to include childcare. So for us, that went from $23 to $68 a month, which isn't the end of the world. But for a pretty plain gym, that was way too much. So, you know, there's no pool, no you know, basketball court and, and whatnot. So we went gym shopping. Any guesses what feature became the most important to us as we shopped? (laughs) Right? We just wanted child care. We didn't care if you have a rock wall or a pool or a spinning class. If it's a fitness museum. We just want you to watch our kids. Well, I'm being silly. But I think that's something like what was happening for Israel. There was an extreme narrowing of the expectations regarding the Messiah. They just wanted someone to throw off Rome. And I think that explains the delay in recognition. If Jesus just shows up to these two disciples and his first words are, hey, it's me, I'm alive. You know what they would have said? Yes, free childcare. <laughs> or they would have said, yes, get rid of Rome. Get rid of Rome. Because that's all they were thinking about. Their hope in the Messiah as a defeater of Rome, their gospel, if you will, was too small. And Jesus was going to expand it for them. So let's talk about that for a moment. In what ways was their gospel too small? Let me reread verses 19 through 27. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer These things and then enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, there's more going on in these verses than I'll have time to cover. But let me point out just 
two things. First, they say this. There's a guy named Jesus, and he was awesome, or so we thought. He was mighty in word and deed. And we had hoped that he was the one to set Israel free. In fact, there are even rumors that he was still alive, but maybe that's all that they are. Just rumors. In many ways, this passage isn't just about them. It's about us, too. It's very possible that we can take our little hopes for Jesus, our small gospels, if you will, and place them onto Jesus and do so in such a way that we miss who he is as a big savior, a big gospel who makes big demands of us, but also gives us big grace and mercy. I see at least three ways in this passage that they were taking Jesus and making him smaller. Let me move through those here quickly. I'll I'll say them first just so we know where we're going. I think they, they had a power Jesus and they had a pick and choose Jesus and they had what I'll call a prosperity Jesus. I won't spend too much time on the power Jesus because we've already spent, I think, a good bit of time developing that theme already. But they wanted a powerful ruler who would galvanize the hopes of the people and lead them in a, uh, I don't know, a rebellion or somehow do it supernaturally to throw off Rome, leading them into a new golden age. Now, I suspect that's probably not the hope you brought to church this morning. You're not just going, I hope Jesus could just overthrow Rome. Like, no one's coming to church asking that question anymore. But there is certainly pressure to make Jesus fit into our own political scheme and to shoehorn, shoehorn him into one political party or another. But the reason Jesus didn't want to reveal himself to them immediately is because these disciples would have simply co-opted him into their political hope. And Jesus is way too big for that. And that hope is way too small for them and for us. Another aspect of their gospel smallness was what I'll call pick and choose Jesus. So what do I mean by this? I mean, they focused in on certain aspects of the Messiah to the neglect or even the exclusion of other aspects. So what does Jesus say? Let me read it again. 25, 26, and 27. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, we'll come back to that word, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Two things to notice. First, he says it was necessary that the Christ should suffer. Suffering comes before glory. In their pain, they had picked the promises about Jesus they liked and ignored the ones they didn't. They didn't want an Isaiah 53 suffering Messiah. Now, this walk from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus was something like seven miles. So I don't know how long it would t- take to walk seven miles, perhaps two hours. So something, I don't know what point he showed up in their walk. So let's just say an hour and a half. I don't have an hour and a half with you this morning. But if I did, we could go back and look at all of these Old Testament scriptures, like Isaiah 53, that speak of a suffering Savior 
who suffers before he enters his glory. That's why Jesus says, quote, it was necessary. The second thing to notice is Jesus's repetition of the word all, all. He uses it three times. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All, all, all. Let the sweep of that statement land on you. Think of what Jesus is claiming here. The whole Bible is about me, says Jesus. As a staff, last week during our Monday staff meeting, we read a recent interview in the New York Times. Now, the woman being interviewed uh, is the president of a theological seminary. That's, that was her title. Um, and in the interview, in addition to rejecting the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So she said, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In addition to saying that, this president of the seminary also dismissed the reliability of the Bible, human depravity or our sinful bent, the virgin birth, and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross, as well as any hope or sorrow in the afterlife. When she was asked specifically about what happens after we die, she said, I don't know. I don't bring this up to scoff. Because I know that on any given week, there's perhaps people here this morning that share some of those views of Christianity and Jesus. And, and, if, and if that's you, what I would want to say is I'm glad you're here. It's not the view we have of Jesus in the Bible here at our church, but I'm glad you're here. But what I would encourage you to think about is that's not the Jesus, that's not Jesus's own view of things. Let me put it like this. So the New Testament authors, as they're writing things like Luke's gospel here and all the other writings we have in the New Testament, they look back in the Old Testament and they see in the Old Testament it all pointing to Jesus. So when the New Testament authors look back and see the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, they're not doing something creative or inventive. They're simply doing the very thing that Jesus put in place. He, he set the pattern for all these other New Testament authors. He set the pattern for you and I that when we read the Old Testament and we see all of it pointing to him, we're not doing something creative and inventive. We're doing the very thing he did himself. Jesus didn't seem to have a view of pick and choose Jesus, right? All of the scripture, always all pointing to him. So this ending we have in Luke's gospel, an ending that includes the death of Jesus and then a resurrection in glory, suffering, then glory. It's not like an alternative ending that we can pick and choose our own adventure, so to speak. We can't have Jesus as a good teacher who's mighty in word and deed, which is what they wanted, but not also a suffering savior who's going to redeem the whole world, which is what he was doing. The other gospel that they have that's too small is what I'll call prosperity Jesus. 
It's a view that, of Jesus that he's here to bring primarily, mainly, hope for this life only. Now, they wanted Rome out. And they wanted that now. And I've already said this, but I'll say it again. We can't blame them too much for that. A few years ago, um, I accidentally, so this was not on purpose, I shut my right thumb in my car door, uh, right on the thumbnail. I did not do it on purpose. <laughs> um, and it hurt really bad that day. And it hurt really, really bad the next day. And it was then that I feel like I learned the meaning of the word throb. I was like, I, I, you know, like the cartoonish thing when like, you know, the cartoon and their thumb swells in size. I don't know how much my thumb swelled, but I feel like I could feel my heartbeat in my thumb. It wasn't wrong to pray about that. It wasn't wrong to have that be a very all-consuming focus on that next day. But it would be wrong to say that the Savior of the world the cosmic center of the universe, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, really was so that my life can be blessed in very material ways. That would be wrong. You know, sometimes prosperity, Jesus shows up when we want a spouse or when we want Jesus to fix the spouse we do have or when we need kids or want kids or want him to fix the kids we do have. I've never wanted that. (laughs) You're laughing at me. We want a new career. There's nothing wrong with these things. They're good things to pray about. But when we take that and we narrow the ministry of Jesus Christ into our lives to provide those things for us, then we have done something wrong. And something that in the end is hurtful to us. When we shrink Jesus down. This is why. Jesus came. Not to unveil a small gospel. But a big gospel. And it's the big gospel that changes them. And to see how the big gospel changes them. I want to read the rest of the passage. At least as far as we're going to preach this morning. Verses 28 through 35. We read this. So they drew near to the village. To which they were going town called Emmaus. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, which, by the way, was seven miles after they had already gone seven. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, this is what they were saying, not not the two, but the eleven and the others who were saying there. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they, that now this is the two, told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now this last point in the sermon will be uh, short. But do you remember what was said about them at the beginning? In verse 17 it says that they were sad. 
This is so sad. I mean, they're just walking along, and Jesus says, what are you talking about? And he doesn't seem to know what he's talking about. And they look at him just in bewilderment. They're so dejected and disappointed. But now what are they? We read the comment that their hearts burned as Jesus explained to them the big gospel, which, by the way, is the only gospel there is. I don't know all that it means to say that their hearts burned. But what I think it means is that when Jesus, when the Jesus who is talked about in all of the scriptures was explained to them, they encountered something better than they could have possibly imagined. A savior who is not going to be just in charge of Israel. This little slice of real estate on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. But Jesus was going to be Lord of the whole earth. We're not going to get to it this week, but Jason will next week. In verse 47, it says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be claimed in his name to all the nations. All of Jesus, in all of the Bible, to all of the nations. And far from being sad, though it's late at night, they rushed the seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell everyone what they had heard. And learned. And they're changed. Let me close with this thought. It's strange to think about Jesus veiling himself in the way that he does in this passage. It almost seems sneaky, doesn't it? I've read a number of systematic theologies. There's like, you can go to my office, I can show you. There there are these big fat books um, that try and systematize all that Christians believe about a whole bunch of different topics. So they tend to be big, fat books. I actually, I joke, I have two of them I use. I set my laptop on every day. They're Calvin's Institutes. <laughs> and so I always joke that I use Calvin's Institutes every day at work. Um, and I've read some of these, and, and, and they've never talked about the sneakiness of God. <laughs> his, his creative power, his knowledge, his sovereignty, his holiness, his mercy, his grace, never his sneakiness, Right? I'm not sure that's the right word. Would you call a bride who wears a veil on her wedding day sneaky? We wouldn't do that. She's not sneaky, but strategic. I've officiated a number of formal weddings where the bride wears a veil. That is, until the veil is removed. The point was not to veil her beauty indefinitely, but for the purpose of displaying it at just the right time to the one she loves. Beholding the big gospel is so much better than all of our small gospels. It's the good news that we can't manipulate Jesus into being just our political leader. And it's the good news that we don't have to rack our brains trying to say, okay, do we believe that or not believe that? Like, what part of the Bible do we believe? It's all there for all of our good so that when we need it and we're struggling in doubt, it can come as an objective, clear, powerful word and encourage us. And it's the good news that the prosperity that Jesus does give, the abundance he offers is an abundance that will not be taken from us when we die. C.S. Lewis has this thing in the Chronicles of Narnia at one point where he speaks of being inside, um, I'll just say the gospel, inside Christianity as something that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And when you go into it, it's like it just keeps growing. That's the way it is with the big gospel.
A hope that grows and grows and grows into eternity. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come back up. And then I'm going to lead us uh, as we begin to take the Lord's Supper together. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it is so easy to do. In fact, I'd venture to say that all of us are doing it at some point or another, often without even realizing it. We're making you too small. Uh, Maybe we do that because a little version of you is easier to control and manipulate. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you would rule and reign over our lives in the fullest way imaginable. For our good and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.